0: I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about the church's use of great art in evangelization and catechesis and inoculating kids against the influence of woke culture. Join us, sit back and enjoy some free expression. Religious imagery has played a vital role in Catholic life since the early days of the Church. Paintings and sculptures have helped to shape our understanding of the faith and given us our impressions of key figures in the Christian story. Some works are so familiar that we recognize them immediately. Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is one that comes to mind. Dr. Jem Sullivan from Catholic University of America has compiled 50 faith-inspired images in a new collection from Tan Books. It's called Sacred Art Every Catholic Should Know. Dr. Sullivan is here. Thanks so much for taking time to speak with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful for the invitation and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Well, you've identified these 50 images, some well known, some less so. What's of particular importance about these works?
1: So, what we try to do here is to really give a reader a good sampling of some of the best masterpieces of sacred art that the church has had over 2,000 years. Because, you know, the Catholic Church has given the world such a rich treasury of sacred art over 2,000 years. Um, It was almost impossible to narrow this (laughs) list down to 50 masterpieces, so the list is not meant to be comprehensive, but to really serve as an introduction to this immense treasure of sacred art by which the Catholic Church contributes beauty to the world. The pieces are culturally Catholic, and they remind us of the, the beauty of the forms of Christian prayer. The Angelus, the contemplative prayer of the rosary, the lives of the saints, the life of Christ Jesus himself, Mary, and all of the biblical figures, all of these are represented in this selection of paintings. Each painting is in itself a masterpiece, but it points really to that holiness of life that is reflected in each of those figures that are depicted. So that's the point of this book.
0: Catholics are, are so used to seeing churches filled with pictures, statues, icons, stained glass windows. We tend to think of them as just part of the worship atmosphere. But at some point in Christian history, somebody must have had the insight that images could be useful. How did the tradition of sacred art come about?
1: No, That's a great question, Bill. And, and honestly, you know, we can say that there has never been a time in the Church's 2,000-year-old history, that we do not have some expression of sacred art. So it really begins from the from the earliest moments of the Church's life, from the catacombs of ancient Rome to the Byzantine, the great Byzantine basilicas and cathedrals, to the Gothic cathedrals of the Middle Ages, to the Baroque masterpieces and the Renaissance, this overflowing of art, most of which was sacred art, Um, to the the Baroque period and down to our own day. There's never been a time when the Church does not express faith in visual and auditory forms. Why? Because sacred art is a means of catechesis and evangelization for centuries. If we think of one example from history, we think back to the magnificent Gothic cathedrals of the Middle Ages. These were places of prayer and pilgrimage, shrines. Think of Chartres Cathedral in France. We do not know the names of the artists and craftsmen who built short Cathedral. They didn't sign their names on the walls of the cathedral as yet. They would only begin to do that in Renaissance, and for the most part in the Middle Ages, artists and craftsmen remained anonymous. But what we do know is that these cathedrals quickly came to be seen as catechisms in stone and stained glass. Why? Because when the faithful gathered to pray in these churches each week, they worshipped the Lord. They were surrounded by the beauty of faith. They saw the faith of the church that they had professed in the words of the creed now represented on the walls and windows, in the sculpture, the stained glass, the mosaic, paintings, the architecture, the beautiful sacred music that they heard. So the same faith that they professed was now taking the form of the beautiful in sacred art. And so the cathedral, the beautiful Gothic cathedral was not only a functional building that happened to have some beautiful art and architecture. Rather, it was a sacred space that was itself telling the story of salvation history. This is something that we begin to see from very early on in the Church's life, of this desire to express the faith in works of art. So that the people, the faithful, what they could not read in in the Middle Ages, they were mostly illiterate, what they could not read on the pages of the Bible, they could read now on the walls in the stained glass windows, in the uh, beautiful sculpture, uh, and and here in the sacred music. So in a way, sacred art has always had a value of catechesis and evangelization because it reaches us first on just the sheer human level. We just delight in something that's beautiful, right? Um, And then on a spiritual level, we're led to see, to gaze on, to contemplate some aspect of the mystery of who God is and the mystery of who we are in relationship to God.
0: Of course, by uh, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and all that, there was already a well-established sort of thousand-year history of using visual imagery to communicate these spiritual ideas. But it strikes me that if you're looking at the earliest days, this was actually a kind of a departure from the Old Testament proscriptions on graven images and all of that. And since Christianity came out of Judaism, it it seems like a, a real shift in emphasis and direction.
1: You're absolutely right, Bill, and that's exactly what happens here is the incarnation, right? The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, who's the Word made flesh, who comes among us as a, as a baby, a child, an infant. And then is the one who is the Son of God, believed and accepted in faith as the Son of God. And the Incarnation changes everything. Now, there was a theologian in the 8th century, St. John of Damascus, John Damascene, also known as John Damascene. And he was the one to first kind of present the theological arguments for the making of images in the Church. And you're absolutely right. There was the sense in which he had to defend against those who would say, well, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, there's an injunction against making images. So what are you Christians doing with all of this art that you express in your churches and places of prayer? And he would say, St. John Damascene would say, he said, once God took human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, now matter really matters. And matter is now capable, that is, material elements from the world, clay and stone and paint and all of this, now matter is capable of revealing something of the very mystery of God. And so, really, that, that was how we began to look at it from the perspective of the Incarnation. Once God took flesh in human form, now it was okay for the Church to say, yes, now that faith that we have can take visible form in these works of art. St. Paul says it so beautifully in Colossians, right? He says, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And the word in Greek that Paul uses is uh, for image is icon. He says, Christ is the icon of the invisible God. So now that God is revealed in the flesh, we can see God in the person of Jesus Christ, it is now possible to make images so that that faith in him can be further
0: reflected upon and contemplated. Of course, throughout Christian history, there, uh, art has been at the center of numerous controversies. You have the whole icon dispute, and then even though the Renaissance represented this high point in, in Christian art, it was immediately followed by the Reformation, and the Protestants then rejected a lot of this imagery and began to call it idolatry. <laughs>
1: And that's always been the, the charge of the iconoclast, right? Those who would destroy images, uh, that somehow this is idolatry. And what the Catholic Church would argue, and the Catechism presents very clearly, is that we don't worship these images. We, right. Only God is worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. But these images and beautiful art and sacred music, they lead us to the mystery of God. They are the visible auditory means by which we come to know God, we come to experience God's presence and love and mercy. So in a way, what the artist, as I said, the artist creates sacred art, taking from the visible materials of the created world, words, sounds, paint, pigment, stone, clay, marble, and through skill and inspiration, makes the invisible realities of faith visible to our senses. And what that does then, it leads us as the viewer from what is visible what is invisible. So we don't worship what we see. We it simply points us to points us to the transcendent realities of faith. So in a way art then becomes a very distinct form of coming to know God. Because it leads us on the way of beauty, the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty from seeing or hearing to contemplation of some mystery of the Catholic faith. And then from contemplation to praise and worship of God. And that's what the value of art in the, of the Catholic Church.
0: If there's a point of contention today, uh, I imagine it would be over the difference between traditional figural art and uh, more modern abstract representations. Can faith, can religious fervor, can the reassurance that one gets from belief be? communicated through abstract design and, you know, less uh, recognizable religious representations?
1: You know, that's a really good question, Phil, and you're right. It is a controversial question. It raises a lot of anxiety for some. I think one would have to say you have to look at what is being conveyed. What is the content of what is being conveyed in a work of art? There are some, most Christian truths, because they have to do with the incarnation of God, the visible form that God takes in human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Those truths have to be best conveyed, would be best conveyed through representational art. Now, there may be other spiritual realities or truths that can be conveyed with abstract artistic language. So I think one can resolve this question more by looking at what is exactly being conveyed and what is the best way to do it. I think most of the Christian truths that we believe and hold in faith are best conveyed through representational art, but there may be things that have to do with just the human search for God, religious yearning, all of those kind of human realities of faith that can be conveyed also. In, through our abstract means.
0: Well, this is a beautiful little book. The technical aspects of printing are very well attended to. The illustrations are very clear and you, you get a, a very fine sense of what the originals are like in the in the flesh, if you will. <laughs> right. How can people find out more about this? Where is it available?
1: From 10 books. So it's available on their website. Uh, it's also available on Amazon. But I would direct interested readers to to tan books. Um, And what's what's a Catholic reader is going to be able to enter more deeply into the mysteries of the faith by reflecting on these masterpieces of sacred art, because that's what the art is meant to do. It's to lead us to something beyond what we actually see and enjoy as beautiful, to lead us to the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, to show us the way of Mary. Mary is the mother of God and our spiritual mother to help her lead us to her son, Jesus. Um, The lives of the saints. The saints are God's masterpieces. They fully, in their life, their holiness, reflect something of the love of God in the world. The biblical stories that invite us to take our place in the history of salvation. So that's what I hope a reader will take away from this book, is to, through these masterpieces of art, really be led to a deeper love of God, a love of Jesus and his earthly life and ministry, and his Paschal mystery, his life, death, and resurrection, and love of the Holy Spirit, um, of Mary, the saints, the Word of God. That's, that's really the goal of this book, is through the art to lead us deeper into the gift of faith.
0: Dr. Jim Sullivan, author of Sacred Art Every Catholic Should Know. Thanks very much for being with us. It's a beautiful collection, and I imagine it, it will touch many people uh, at, a, at a very uh, visceral level. It's, uh, it's a lovely piece of work. If you were looking for a place to raise your children with traditional moral values and an appreciation of their history and heritage as Americans, Seattle probably wouldn't be at the top of your list. This once lovely Pacific Northwest city has been the site of Antifa riots. It's one of the centers of the police defunding movement. Consequently, it's teeming with crime, drug addiction, and homelessness. If you'll excuse the jest, Seattle has problems that leave its residents, well, sleepless. And all this grief reflects the fact that it's a world capital of progressive politics. So you might be surprised to hear about a new book called Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City by two Seattle-area moms, Stacey Manning and Katie Faust. Stacey Manning is here now. Stacy, thanks for being with us.
2: Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you make the startling proposition that it's possible to immunize young people against leftist indoctrination. A lot of parents would like to know how you do that.
2: We have always kept in mind, both Katie and I, that we are raising adults. We are not raising children. Therefore, they need to be equipped to take on the cultural war we are very much embroiled in. Um, This means that you do have to introduce topics. You'd rather not introduce, but approach appropriately with the appropriate amount of of age-appropriate information. Uh, Your kids can be well-equipped to perhaps not at a very young age know exactly why they think what they think, but they are capable of spotting lies. And when you you, you view yourself, parents, as these prominent foremost educator of your children and any educational professionals that you might uh, contract out for the reading, writing, and arithmetic, you are going to be the person that your child trusts and goes to when they run into these crazy things out in the world that frankly would be difficult to manufacture. There's something called the founder's principle, and um, it's a great term that explains that the first person that introduces a topic to your child is going to be, in that child's eyes, the expert on said topic. Oh. So if you send your kid out into the world and the first time they're exposed to pornography is uh, on the playground on the screen of a phone, that kid has just become the porn expert. And that's who they're going to go back to when they have more questions about pornography. All
0: right. But sometimes I would imagine the, the first influence isn't even in school or, or outside the house. These messages are coming in through television and social media, all kinds of insidious routes. Yes. On
2: the social media front, I think social media is the tool of Satan. And we have kept our children off of social media entirely. Um, Katie has a different opinion, and this has worked for her family. Um, perhaps she just has more time or tenacity to stay on top of the social media activity. But yes, their friends are going to have social media. They are going to be in in the world. And, of course, the idea for us believing that families are um, to be in it but not of it. But they need to know about all of these topics before they embark on woke politics and bad ideas. Essentially, um, at the core, conservative kids need to be taught what they are for and why they are for it.
0: How do you handle a situation where the kid said, my blue-haired teacher, who I love and is so sweet, told me this thing that I don't quite understand? How do you address that?
2: Compassion. Let's say, let's say, for example, um, this blue-haired teacher uh, came out to the class as non-binary and describes uh, their or transgender. Let's say and describes their double mastectomy. Well, um, <laughs> it is very important to cultivate what we call the no-flinch face, um, which is a. An important tool in a parent's tool bag to ensure that you are the person your child brings these issues to. So, with a very calm face after hearing about this coming out party, you discuss with your child the beautiful and complementary nature of male and female and the sadness that this world has become a place where doctors view patients struggling with a uh, gender dysphoric mind as an opportunity for a paycheck and heaviness, that that this woman has cut off healthy breast that will never be able to nurse a baby and the irreversible damage she has done to herself cannot be undone. And sympathy, yet um, a little bit of horror that she would think it appropriate to bring this to the classroom and of course uh, the responsible parent also puts her shoes on and goes and talks to the teacher. She goes and talks to the principal. Um, The time for, you know, cowardice and someone else will, will manage this for us has long passed and... There are too many of us out there um, who know what's right, but, but fear saying what's right. And we're going, we're going to
0: fear ourselves into losing our culture. Hmm. Seattle and Los Angeles and other so-called blue cities are probably just out ahead of the rest of the country and adopting a lot of strange philosophies. How can cities in general uh, resist these trends? How can parents lend support perhaps to politicians who are willing to stand up for more traditional views? Must we all be activists these days?
2: I'm afraid so. Um, was it Shakespeare? You might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And all politics, from what I've seen here in our little city, having having had a husband who ran twice for our city council, all politics are local politics. And if you want to make a significant change, uh, you're going to have to run for the city council. You're going to have to run for the school board. You, know, you, you are the change you want to see in the world. And... Um, and that's just going to take a little bit of courage because we're not launching our children into a better America and at least try to recover the path um, back to a more moral and sane society. These children are, are growing up sometimes in these leftist cities. My kids have been the only conservative pushback. Um, other kids have experienced in school. You know, they have changed hearts and minds. They have converted kids from pro-choice to pro-life, um, because they've been well-equipped. And if, if you're not well-equipped yourself, you can't be well-equipped to teach your children. So uh, the time for self-education is now. And any fight that you can bring to um, aiding candidates that Uh, you agree with, that are running for your your local offices, putting any time in to to make the cultural shift. What what happens on the national level, you have to, in my opinion, accept that we're pretty powerless over what's going on with our federal government. But the fact that you have camps in your downtown area and homeless drug addicts roaming the streets and feces all over the place in your city square, that's a local issue, and yes, we are responsible for what's going on in our neighborhoods.
0: Now, you and your co-author, Katie Faust, not only have produced this book, but you have created an organization called Them Before Us. Tell us a little about that.
2: Them Before Us is a nonprofit forwarding the rights of a child to be known and loved by their mother and father. We actually wrote the book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, a couple of years ago. It's more of a, I think, like a field manual for all the ways that we are sacrificing the rights of children on the altar of adult desire. We write about um, the importance of biology and gender, the importance of marriage, the devastation of divorce, growing up with same-sex parents. Uh, we cover donor conception, surrogacy, and adoption. And, it's uh, <laughs> Oh uh, prayed when we when we first started writing this book and we first started with this organization, Katie Crane, God, let us have a worldwide effect on on the way that society views family structure. And instead, it changed the global conversation from the adult centric, how is a child going to satisfy me in my desire to be a parent? And instead, to what are the rights and needs of children, and how can they best flourish? We're making great headway with many different organizations all over the globe to, to write the way that we look at children. Because when you're hearing the words modern family uh, these days, what you're actually hearing is children's sacrifice.
0: Well, how can people find out about your work and about the book? Where, uh, where should they go online? How can they contact you?
2: For them before us, it is us dot com, and we have all sorts of stories, running news articles, we have newsletters, some speaking engagements are certainly posted there. Uh, that would definitely be the hub for all things them before us, and certainly you can contact either Katie or I through that website. And for raising conservative kids in a woke city. Amazon.com for pre-orders. Our book will be released on September 26th, and it will be an audio book as well, which I was privileged to read. So if you enjoy my dulcet tones, you can have five hours of easy listening and have a few laughs, too, because I must say, uh, but the book's pretty funny.
0: Stacey Manning, co-author of Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City, teaching historical, economic, and biological truth in a world of lies, and co-founder of an organization that is doing very aggressive work, Them Before Us. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you
2: so much. The pleasure was mine.
0: If you've been listening to these shows online but would like to hear them on the radio, tell your local Catholic station. Free Expression with Bill Castle is available for broadcast free of charge. Ask your Catholic station to contact us by email. billcastle at sbcglobal.net That's B-I-L-L-K-A-S-S-E-L All one word. billcastle at sbcglobal.net And don't forget to support your local station. In this time of censorship and so-called cancel culture, Catholic Radio is becoming increasingly important as an alternative media source. Our programming is based on the Word of God and the teaching of His Church, and we bring you the factual, truthful information you aren't getting from the mainstream media. Support Catholic Radio. Your generosity keeps Catholic outlets on the air, and donations to broadcast ministries can be tax deductible. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and company publications where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curis provided technical assistance, theme, and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.